0: Let me invite you, if you have your Bibles, to open them up and turn to Romans chapter 1. It's where we left off last week, Romans chapter 1, and we're going to be picking up there again. Romans chapter 1, and, and we're going to be in verses 3 and 4 this morning. Um, earlier this week, I had a conversation with somebody who wasn't able to be here for uh, the, the launch of Romans last week. And um, he said to me, um, hey, did I miss much? And rather than qualifying it, I just said, you know, what you might wanna do is uh, go on the New Hope website and just uh, get caught up on the video. So I'm gonna encourage you, if you're gone this summer, you're on vacation, obviously you notice a lot of people are gone this morning on summer vacation, school's out, and people are making their plans. Um, You can catch the New Hope services live right now. We're streaming live. Um, You can go to the New Hope webpage this week Um, and you can catch it live if you're gone, or you can go to the New Hope Facebook page. You can catch it that way. But on Tuesdays, the messages are also posted, right? So you can go to iTunes, you can catch them on iTunes, or you can catch them on the website. So a lot of ways to do that. I'm holding this little notebook in my hand because it's just a reminder for you that We've got notes in your bulletins this morning, and it's going to allow you to stay up to date on the study as we're working through it. So, if you grab one of these off the back table this morning, you'll be able to insert your notes from the bulletin this morning and it'll allow you to keep track of everything we've been studying together. Um, One detail for you before we jump into the study, we had a a meeting this last week on Tuesday night with Meridian Township related to the new property that we've been looking at over on uh, M78 by the old drive-in theater. And so get ready to get your cheer on because uh, Meridian Township gave us unanimous approval for the property, right? Okay, so... I don't know about you, but I've never heard of Meridian Township giving unanimous approval on anything. (laughs) So um, maybe they have, and I'm sure I'm just not familiar with it. But we're really celebrating uh, 100% approval from both the Meridian Township Planning Commission and the Meridian Township Board saying, we think this is a good thing. We think what you're doing is a good thing. So we're really celebrating. In case you're wondering, um, the finances that that are necessary to purchase the property, and we had mentioned it's $875,000, all the finances are in place for that. We don't have to borrow any money. All the money is already in position to purchase the property. So we'll keep you updated along the way. The closing on the property will be the end of this month, and maybe we can do some kind of a worship service out there later in the summer. That'd be kind of fun. To celebrate. Okay, I want to get into Romans with you, and here's where we ended last week. We had this really, really precious promise. We we worked through Romans chapter 1, verses 2, 1, and 2, and but we ended with Romans chapter 8, with this promise that Paul recorded from God. And you'll see it on the screen. He said, This for I am convinced, I am convinced that neither what, church, neither death, neither death nor life." And then he goes on to give this huge list of things that cannot separate you from the love of God. He started with death nor life, and then he goes on to angels and demons and these principalities and powers, none of these things can separate you from the love of God. Very interesting to me that he started out with death. We hit the pause button on that promise last week, and I know a lot has happened in your life in the last seven days, but allow me to do this. Allow me to take this promise from Romans 8 and link it together with a story from Mark chapter 12 in which Jesus was talking to people about death. Individuals had approached him and they had, they had questions about the resurrection and about death. They're trying to figure out, well, who's going to be married to who in heaven? Well, how does that work if, if a man had multiple wives? And what, How does that fit together? And Jesus said, you are really, really mistaken. Now, let me take you to the passage. You'll see it on the screen. Mark chapter 12 and verse 24. Jesus said to them, "Is this not the reason you are mistaken, that you do not understand the scriptures or the power of God?" Now, that's a bad day when God says to you, "You don't know your Bible," right? That's what Jesus is saying, "You don't know your Bible." Now this next part is a part my wife really hates, okay? This this verse. It says this, for when they rise from the dead, they are neither married or given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Lori really doesn't care for that part, right? Because it's, it's saying you're not going to be married in heaven, right? And she's like, I don't want that verse to be true. Okay, but here's where Jesus goes with that. Verse 26. But regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the burning bush? How God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. See, God's not saying, I was the God of Abraham. I was the God of Jacob and Isaac when they were alive, but I'm not anymore. No, He's, he's, I am the God. I'm the God of the living. So Jesus can say, he's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. You're really, really mistaken on that. Here's what I want to develop with you this morning. This, this really strong understanding that that righteousness that we talked about last week that God puts on us, His righteousness, makes us individuals who are entitled to be part of the God of the living. We don't have to fear death this morning. We understand we serve the God of the living. I want to pray with you, and we'll go into Romans chapter 1, verses 2 and 3 and 4. Let's, let's pray. Father, we come before you and we recognize we're really taking on some challenging material. And it's not easy for us to comprehend in our humanness, but through the power of the Holy Spirit we can. And we know that you can intercept us where we're at, and you can change our course, and you can change our direction because of what you said. Even though we know this is Paul writing this down, you spoke through him. So, Father, we approach it that way. These are your words, and we're asking you to give us understanding, give us insight. And where you need to make adjustment in our life, we, in, we invite that this morning, that you would speak to us. We ask for this in Jesus' mighty name. And all God's people said, amen. Okay, Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. That's what we did last week. Here's verse 3. Concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh, whether you know it or not, verse 3 is huge. Huge, huge, huge. Like megas huge. Not just because I like saying the word megas. It's a huge verse, especially because it's linked with verse 4. Why tell a bunch of Romans, living in Rome, That Jesus is the ancestor of some Jewish king, some long dead Jewish king. What's Paul's angle? Should that matter? Should that matter to them? Should that matter to you? Because this is written for the whole church. Why is he telling us that? The answer to why it should matter is found in verse 4. Verse 4 says this, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. According to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, last week, we said Romans addresses really hard questions. It, it, and I put in your notes about 12 sample hard questions last week. Well, one of those was, is Jesus really God? And if he's really God, why does it call him the Son of God? In what sense is he God the Son? Now, the Bible plainly teaches Jesus is God. Right, church? Okay, like 10 of you believe that. Okay, the Bible plainly teaches Jesus is God, right? Okay, we're good on that. The Bible plainly teaches that. So although he's called God, he's called here the Son. So it's really logical. Maybe some of your friends have asked you this before. Why is he called God's Son? Now Paul goes a step further and he says he's not only the Son, he's declared the Son of God with power by something very, very specific means something not normal has happened because in verse 3 it says he's born of the descendant of David, meaning he's flesh. But here we're told he was resurrected, meaning something catastrophic has happened. Between verses 3 and 4, something not normal happened because he died. Messiahs don't die. How could this be? Paul goes on to say he's resurrected from the dead. Well, who is this one that he's talking about? He says this one that's been authenticated, his name in verse 4 is Jesus. And he says his title is Christ Messiah, and his authority is Lord. Yeshua, Mashiach, Kurios. Yeshua, Mashiach, Kurios. Jesus, Christ, Lord. Jesus is his name. Christ is his title. Lord is his position. Yeshua, Mashiach, Kurios. If he cannot be declared as Lord, if he is not... Why be here at all this morning? I mean, we waited all winter long for a day like this, right? It's gorgeous outside. Why take 40 minutes out of your day to read about this guy if he is not who he says he is? And if he is, how do those aspects that Paul's writing about affect me this morning? Why do I need to know that he's born this descendant of David? I need two volunteers this morning like I had two last week to read two pieces of scripture for me if you would be willing to do that. I need someone to read for us Matthew chapter one verse six. Somebody willing to do that for us? Everybody's putting their hand up at once. I have too so many to pick from, right? <laughs> okay, Jim, would you do this one for us? Okay. Jim, I'm gonna give you Matthew chapter one and, and verse six and verse 16. You gonna read that for us? Okay. And then who's, I need one more person to read for us, um, Luke 1, verse 27. Who's going to do that? Okay, Lisa, thank you very much. Okay, Jim, I'm going to ask you to read first. Matthew chapter 1, verse 6. Yes, it is. Okay, and what he's doing right here is he started a genealogy. If you've never read Matthew chapter one, or perhaps you've opened it up and you've just kind of tuned it out before, what Matthew is doing is he's starting to make a, an argument for Jesus' descent. Now, bump down to verse sixteen. Okay, excellent. He's just established a genealogy for us. Between verses 1 and 16, this long list of all these patriarchs leading up to Jesus. Now, Lisa, let's have the next one. And, and that's going to be from Luke chapter 1, verse 27. To a virgin be to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Very good. Excellent. So, we've got a mom and a dad. We've got earthly parents being established in the Bible. He's been listed as an individual who's born to a mom and a dad, two humans, the descendants of David, as established in the Bible, descendants of David, this ancient Jewish king. Why? Well, in order to fulfill prophecy, because the Old Testament is littered with all these verses saying, from David, from the anointed king. There will be one coming in the future who will fulfill all the prophecies. So the Bible teaches very clearly in verse 3, Jesus is both man, verse 3, he's a descendant of David according to the flesh, and it teaches that he's God in verse 4. Verse 4 proclaims his deity. Verse 3 proclaims his humanness. Verse 4 says he's declared the son of God. Now, how do you and I put those two things together so that we understand that? Well, we use a Bible example. That will help us. Jesus has had a really, really long day in Mark chapter 4. You see him getting into a boat. It's a hot day in the Middle East. And at the end of the day, the sun is beginning to set. He and the disciples get into a boat, and they're going to sail across the Sea of Galilee. About midway across the sea, a storm comes up. Now, the disciples look in the back of the boat, and they see Jesus sleeping in the back of the boat. Now, these guys are professional fishermen. They make their living on the sea. So this must be a really violent storm for them to be afraid. And they're so afraid, the Bible says, that they believe the boat is about to break up. So they shake Jesus and wake him up and say to him, Master, don't you care? We're about to be destroyed. And the scripture goes on to describe that Jesus, when he wakes up, he has to get the sleepy head off him for just a minute. And, and, And then when he sees what's going on, He immediately stands up and he says to the wind, Hush, and to the sea, Be still. So we have a man sleeping in the back of the boat who can stand up and speak to nature and nature responds to him. God, man. See, the Bible is littered with these kind of stories. God, man. Man asleep in the boat like you and I, we get tired at the end of the day, but God who can tell the storm what to do and he calms a violent storm. Okay, so we're tracking with this now. God, man, why? If you're new to church, maybe you're thinking this. Why would God become a man? A couple really big reasons, two that are very, very important to me. First of all, he can identify with you and I, right, church? God, man, can now identify with us yet, Scripture says, without sin. That means he becomes the perfect high priest who can intercede for you and I. Let me take you on the screen to Hebrews, Hebrews 4.15. Jesus can sympathize with our weaknesses. He is one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet, church, without, that's amazing. A man on planet Earth without any sin whatsoever, that's never been said of anyone. But yet he's been tempted in all the things that we've been tempted in. So that's the first big one. He can identify with you and I. Here's the second big one. God can't die, right? God can't die but God in the flesh can. And the one who was to die for us for our sins had to be able to die. So God can't die, but God in the flesh can. That's great news. Now you might be thinking, wow, that sounds really morbid. That is great news even if it is morbid. God in the flesh can die because in Jesus, the God-man, He understands us. He feels what we feel. He can grasp what it is to be tired to be anxious, to be irritated, to be hungry, and he can grasp what it is to die, and so he can die for us. This might be new news to you if you're new to church, but there are multiple accounts in history, secular history outside of the Bible of this one we call Jesus. Tacitus, a man living around 100 AD, he was a historian for Rome, wrote about Jesus. Pliny the Younger, an individual who also wrote for Rome, wrote about Jesus outside of the Bible. One that I'm going to put for you on the screen this morning is Josephus. He lived in in the first century and he wrote around A.D. 90. About the same time John was writing the book of Revelation, Josephus wrote this about Jesus. He says this, Now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure." He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was Christ. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men among us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him. For he appeared to them alive again the third day, as the divine prophets had foretold these and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him. And the tribe of Christians so named from him are not extinct at this day. Well, I'm glad to tell Josephus they're still not extinct at this day, right? That was in 90 AD, okay? So we're tracking their secular evidence about this one Jesus, this human who lived. John takes it a step further. Let me take you on the screen to 1 John 4. He says, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, meaning put on humanity, is from God. Now, John's not writing only of merely recognizing Jesus' humanity. He's really referring to accepting the truth that Jesus is God because he says Jesus Messiah, Yeshua Mashiach, the one who comes from God, Jesus Christ, the one who confesses him who's come in the flesh is from God. That's a spirit that comes from God, that he came and lived as a man. I promise you this morning in, in your work week ahead of you, maybe your school week, maybe you just got out of school and you're on vacation in your neighborhood, there's individuals who believe that Jesus lived that he was a man, that a human was here on planet Earth in the first century by the name of Jesus, and most people believe he lived a supreme life. Thomas Jefferson, one of the authors of the Constitution, believed that Jesus is a man who lived in the first century, who lived a supreme life, but absolutely denied that he was from God. He was a deist, believes there is a God, but did not accept that Jesus is God. Paul's telling us in verse 4, there's a theological truth here you need to grasp, there's this understanding of God you need to really take on. Verse 4, he says, He was declared the Son of God. Now, the title that's used there, Son, is an incarnational title. It's an incarnational term. When Jesus dressed himself in humanity, when he put on flesh, God, the second member of the Godhead, put on the Sonness. We'll come back to that in just a moment. Let's look at this word declared. Here's what I want you to do to understand that word. Put yourself mentally on the shores of Lake Michigan right now. It's a great day to be there, right? Gorgeous day. Just picture yourself over in the Grand Haven, Holland area. You're standing on the beach, and you're looking towards the west and very, very clearly you can see the horizon line where the water, the blueness of the beautiful waters of Lake Michigan meet the beautiful blue sky, but yet you can see that line where the two are separated. It's a delineating line. Paul uses that same term when he uses this word declared. In your notes this morning is this word, it's a Greek word, it's horizo, Horizo. It's where we get the word horizon from. So when you see this word on the screen, you understand horizon means to declare something. It's a boundary line. Paul says in a much greater way, a vastly greater way, God the Son was delineated. There's a clear line of absolute clarity by who He is on planet Earth. Now to understand this, what I'm gonna ask you to do is lean with me back into something we looked at last fall if you were here. We did a short three week series called Revealing Jesus in which I tried to help you understand how God could become man. And scripture gives us a description of that in John chapter 1, verse one. So look with me on the screen at this verse and it starts out this way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now I know some of you are reading that right now and you're saying like, man, this is why I don't read the Bible because that's really confusing stuff. How do I understand that? Here's what's going on. John in supreme style is summarizing how Jesus stepped down through the sphere of time. How the second member of the Godhead put on flesh to become the Jesus of history. That may be really new news for you because maybe you came in here this morning thinking, I thought Jesus was this created individual who who was born of Mary and Joseph. And we've already looked at the fact that he's been declared the son of God. So let's just take on three words to understand that. And I want you to see these three big words, in the beginning. So look with me at these words on the screen. In the beginning. What book of the Bible does that make you think of right away, church? Genesis. Genesis, yeah. But yet John's using it here in John 1.1 1, 1, in the beginning. Well, both the author of Genesis and the author of John are using beginning for the exact same reason. The word has the same implication. The word beginning is the word archae. You see it in your notes this morning. It's the root of the word architect. So the, the word archae is speaking of this one who is the source, the one who is the origin. This chief one in authority, that's why the word is used for architect, RK, architect, the one who's the authority over a project. Well, in this sense, both are true of Jesus. He's both the architect of creation and the ruler over creation, and John says that one was in the beginning, that in the RK, before the beginning, he was with God, he is God, So R.K. is referring here, both in Genesis and in John, to the beginning of the universe. Not the first thing created, but the originator of creation. That means something for you. This one whom you call Jesus, whom you call your Savior, the word John calls him, was already in existence before the heavens and the earth were formed. So Jesus is not a created being. Are we good with that? Okay, let's say amen if you agree. Jesus is not a created being. All right, that's truth. You say amen because that's true. He's not a created being. Time began with the start of the universe, right? When the universe started, time began. The clock started ticking. Anything that exists before that moment is eternal. God existed before that moment. God the Son existed before that moment. So here's what we understand. The one we call Jesus, the second person of the Godhead, is eternal, existed before time, but yet Paul says he's declared God's son supernaturally when he was conceived of Mary and Joseph and born of the descendants of David. So Jesus was God's son in expectancy in all of eternity. There was an expectancy that he would arrive. He's declared God's son at the incarnation but he's confirmed as God's son at the resurrection. That helps us understand why God says some of the things that he does in the Old Testament. Like in 2 Samuel, look with me on the screen. 2 Samuel seven fourteen. I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. See, those verbs are future tense. He will be, he shall be. In other words, the Christ would take upon himself titles and a role that he had not had before. Now if that blows your mind, go one step further with me. This Christ took upon himself the fullness of the title of the Son of God at the incarnation when he stripped himself of all of his godly prerogatives, of all of the glory of heaven, of all of the angels bowing down and worshiping him. We're told he stripped himself of his godness in order to put on flesh. Can I back that up from scripture? Absolutely, Philippians 2.5, it says this, Christ Jesus, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. So as a man, He still possessed some of his glory, some of his godness, although it was veiled, and humanness couldn't see it. The disciples who hung around him couldn't understand it, but immediately you understand it when you begin reading the accounts of Jesus encountering demons. Just think of Jesus walking into a cemetery. Two men who are possessed by demons come screaming at him and fall at his feet in a pile, right at his feet, and they begin screaming out to him, what do we have to do with you, son of the most high God? We know who you are. Why? Because they're spiritual beings, and they could see beyond the veil. They understood who Jesus was. So we understand he was veiled to humans, but he was visible to the spiritual world. That plays very heavily into Paul's statement when he says in Romans 1-4, he was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. So Paul's telling us this morning, the most conclusive evidence of Jesus' position as God was demonstrated with power by the resurrection from the dead. That makes the resurrection a really big deal, doesn't it, church? The resurrection is a big deal. I mean, it's bigger than everything. The resurrection is a huge issue. You and I understand this morning the greatest power known to man is the power of death. It is mighty. It is absolutely powerful. Everyone on this planet walks in fear of it, it it keeps us in check. We build giant megaplex facilities and heavily fund them in order to keep it away. We call them hospitals. We do, we walk in fear of death. It's it's the force with which the legal systems of the world operate by saying to individuals, if you cross that line, we will put you to death because it's the ultimate power that we have. The superpowers of the nation build nuclear weapons to keep other nations in check. You behave, we've got a nuclear weapon in our arsenal. What are they threatening them with? Annihilation, threatening them with with death. It it is the force that we all recognize. It, It is the one that causes humanity to walk in fear and in anxiety. The supreme power on earth, the most intimidating force to man. But hear this, yet to God, it is nothing it's revealed for the puny thing that it really is. We consider it all powerful, extremely intimidating. To God, it is absolutely nothing. The most fearful human experience God says, I got this, this is nothing. Let me back up my words from scripture. I love it when scripture speaks to what I'm speaking to. Revelation 20, 14, look at this. Revelation 20:14. then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire meaning like a rag doll, God's gonna throw it away because it has no more place. He says in Revelation 21.4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death. Can you imagine, church? Can you imagine if you're listening online right now? There will no longer be any death and the sorrow that goes with it, no more fear, no more crying, No more anxiety over this thing. He's just gonna wipe away your tears because he's got this. Go one more verse, 1 Corinthians 15, 26. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. What does God call death, church? An enemy. He says the last enemy that will be abolished is death. Why? Because he's the God of the living. He's not the God of the dead. The resurrection is the action that shows us that God dismantles death. That's why Jesus could say in Mark chapter 12, you guys are badly mistaken. You don't know the word of God or the power of God. He's the God of the living, not the God of the dead. He's going to deposit death in a garbage can one day. It has no power. One more verse to emphasize what I'm saying, and i gonna take you back into our teaching from the book of Acts a few months ago. Acts chapter 13. This is a description of the crucifixion and the death of Jesus. It says this in verse 29, when they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. That'd be a horrible place to stop, wouldn't it? That'd be a sad place to stop, but I love verse 30, because look at verse 30. But God raised him from the dead. Couldn't you just live with that one all day long? But God raised him from the dead because he defeats death. So here's what we have the ultimate king, eternal, existing outside of time, before time, creating time, the exalted one, but also God in the flesh. And Paul says it's the resurrection, people. It's the resurrection that sets this one known as Jesus the man apart from all else on planet earth. It's the resurrection that authenticates him. Because if Jesus had not risen, he'd just be be this great moralist who lived in the first century who asked his people to do ridiculous things. Think about it. Once a month, we gather together to eat crackers and grape juice together to remember a dead guy? No, we celebrate his death until he comes again. We we get together for a reason because we believe that he's resurrected. If he wasn't resurrected, this would be meaningless this morning. There'd be no reason to get together. You think I'm going a step too far? You need to read C.S. Lewis's quote. You think I've been extreme? Read what he had to say. I want you to see this. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God or else a madman or something worse. You think we're done, but we're not done. We've got one more section of verse 4 to do. I told you we're only going to do verses 3 and 4. Here's the last part of verse 4. Verse 4 says, He was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. According to the Spirit of holiness is not just some add-on that Paul threw on, on on the end to close out that verse. It's really a way of saying according to the work of the power of the Holy Spirit. Let me help you contextualize that go to the moment when Jesus was baptized. Even if you're not familiar with church, you maybe weren't raised in church, this moment will be familiar to you. I'm sure you've heard it described. Jesus goes to the Jordan River and John the Baptist baptizes Jesus in the river. We've seen baptisms here at church. We know what that looks like. Somebody goes down into the water and they come up out of the water. The only difference in Jesus' day is that they went into a river. We have a tank. But the remarkable thing at Jesus' baptism is this. We're told that when Jesus came up out of the water, God, the Spirit, descended upon him like what, church? Like a dove. We're told that John looked, and he saw the Spirit of God coming upon him, and then we're told the heavens opened up, and God the Father spoke and said, Behold. I always picture God with his arms like this, Behold. (laughs) Behold, this is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. So at the baptism of Jesus, you have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, the Trinity. Now I've seen a lot of baptisms and I've never seen one like that. That is amazing. This is my Son, whom I'm well pleased. God, the Spirit descending upon him, the Trinity, all the members of the Trinity equal in every way in eternity past and eternity present, always equal as the Godhead. But in the incarnation, in that unique moment in time, the second member of the Godhead willingly stripped himself of all his godness and put on flesh, and heaven's glory was not his in those moments, and heaven's power was not his in those moments, and the prerogatives of deity were not his because he denied himself, and during his time on earth, he submits to the will of the Father, and the power of the Holy Spirit The descent of the Holy Spirit at the baptism of Jesus initiates him into ministry, and miracles begin to explode across the region where Jesus is. Why? Because the power of the Holy Spirit flowing through him, so much so that Jesus even characterized the rejection of him as blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So we have God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, Together, confirming that this one is who the Bible says he is. I want to synthesize what we talked about last week to close this out with what we've looked at this morning. We'll put the two pieces together like a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. They just go together perfect. I want to show you how. Last week, we talked about the righteousness of God and how he puts his righteousness on us, not because of something we did, but because of something he did, right, church? God puts His righteousness on us. Now, Paul's purpose in writing the book of Romans is to help people understand in a very systematic fashion how they can understand justification, how people are made right with God. you got a friend in your life who doesn't know Jesus. you got somebody who wants to understand, how can I be right with God? Invite them to the study on Romans. That's what it's all about. Paul's writing in a really systematic way how you can understand that. He writes about how people are set with God and how God puts us in a place of right conduct as a result of that. So think of this word righteousness again. This righteousness that God puts on us is a transformation, and it's brought about by the power of the Holy Spirit. That means this morning, church, you and I live in a strength that is not our own. We live by the power of God, the power of the Holy Spirit flowing through you. That means something really big. It means that this walk that you have with God is is not some philosophy or some value for life as people would like to describe. What is Christian values or Christian philosophy? Gag me with a spoon. It is not just some value system. And the the gospel doesn't just give structure and then leave you on your own to put it into practice. Hear this if you've heard nothing else. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, the same power that raised Jesus from the grave, the same power that God put righteousness upon you with, by which he sees you as righteous, that same power... God says it flows through you so that you will have freedom from enslavement to sin, so that you don't have to live in sinful behavior. That is good news, church. That's powerful news. The power that raised Jesus from the dead, the power that made you righteous, that same Holy Spirit gives you the capacity to abandon sinful behavior. That that means the power for salvation and the power for victory is based in something much more powerful than you. It's based in the power of the living God. The God who is the God of the living, not the God of the dead. You understand why Jesus says, you guys are really messed up. You need to read your Bible more. You don't understand the power of God. He's the God of the living I want to summarize the essence of what we've talked about last week and this week by one verse. And I'm going to lean back into Paul again because he was writing about this very issue about joining righteousness with the resurrection. Look look with me on the screen at this from Philippians 3.9. Paul said, "I'd, I'd be really good if I'm just found in him, that I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith that I may know him and the power of his what church resurrection it's a resurrection power it's the power that God raised Jesus from the dead that same power is flowing through you Uh, logically people ask questions if you're a believer in Christ you'd say wait okay I, I know this I get this mark and I feel really pumped up right now but what does that mean later today how do, I, how do I walk in that power? That question came out in the Saturday night service last night. Somebody just said, okay, what, what does that mean for tomorrow when I wake up? Because chances are you're going to leave this auditorium, right? And you're going to get in your car, and you're going to be driving down the road, and somebody's going to cut you off in traffic, and you're going to want to go, right? Okay, it's just human nature. We, we fall back into that pattern of behavior. Every time we catch ourselves, we're like, wait, I belong to Christ. I'm not supposed to do that stuff. I'm such a worm, right? Okay, how do we get to the place where we recognize it's the power of God that helps us defeat that temptation to sin? I wish I could tell you this is just this really easy formula. This is going to sound easy, but it's not easy. This is how it works. You start every single day with what we talked about last week. God, you're the master. I'm the servant, and I'm feeling really weak right now. Just give me your strength. What did Jesus say? My grace is sufficient for you, Paul. When Paul came to him and said, I need, I need your strength. I want you to remove this wicked thing from my life. God said to him, my grace is sufficient for you. So we start there each day. God, I'm feeling weak. And the problem is, church, this. When we're in the midst of temptation, when we're drawn into sin, or when we feel like we just flew off the handle, that's the last thing we want to do. Like, God, oh, I really need your strength right now. It's a discipline. So that's why I'm convinced Paul started out by saying, I die daily. That's where you got to put yourself, in that place. I I die daily. God, I come to you. You're the master and the servant. Help me with this issue. It's a pattern of behavior. You do it day after day after day. There is no quick fix formula. But we do it because of who we belong to. Right, church? We, We belong to the great I am the one who gave his life for us. We're gonna to get to sing about that in just a moment to close the service, this great I am, but what I would love to do for you right now, i just love to pray God's blessing over you. Can I do that? Let's pray together. Father, I pray for those who are in this auditorium and those who are watching online and, and those who have been here throughout the course of the weekend, that your power... that, that your power would rest on us in such a way this week, your power to defeat sin in our life, that that power would be experienced by us in such a way that we've never experienced before. You said you are the God of the living, not the God of the dead. Death is something you're going to throw away one day. Father, we come to you because you are the source, you are the strength, you are the great I am. We don't want to walk in fear of death, but we want to walk in the joy of the life that you've promised us. So I pray that your blessing would rest heavily upon these individuals who have surrendered their time on this gorgeous day. It could be any place, but they chose to be here. Father, bless them for that. Give them your encouragement. Give us your strength, and let us experience it this week so that we can point to it and say, God, I just experienced you. I know what that new life is like. Let us know, Father, so that we can share it with others. Let us be bold about this faith that we have, that we would walk in the newness of life. We pray for this in Jesus' mighty name. And all God's people said, amen.